You know, I don't know about you, but this uh, Christmas season has not <clears throat> been very enjoyable for me so far. I, uh, I'm coming off of a few weeks of being rather ill, um, a sinus infection that it got way out of control, and uh, I'm on my second dose of antibiotics. But I think that on top of everything else, of just the chaoticness of our world, the constant barrage of news telling us how awful everything is and how sick everybody's getting, uh, I don't know about you, but this is just a depressing time for me. Yet Christmas is supposed to be this season of joy. It's a time where we look to the coming of Christ Jesus, God's answer to our prayers, of asking God to come into our lives and take all the dishevelment, all the frustration, all the things that aren't making sense, aren't working right, and to come and heal them and make them whole. And yet, I'm in a season right now where I'm struggling with that. And you know, you may not want to hear that as, as a pastor, the expectation is always that we are so close to God that everything always goes right for us. And I'm here to tell you that's just not always true. But what I do want to tell you is that it doesn't have to take away our hope. And this past week, I've really been delighted to watch my wife and my children really try to infuse hope into me, forcing me to get out and, and get a Christmas tree, forcing me to decorate it, forcing me to get into the holiday spirit. And Although there are times where that's hard for me, I have to say that sometimes we need others to pull us out of those ruts. And in today's story, as we begin looking at this series of finding hope and giving hope, there's a great story in which we're going to see somebody that needed a little bit of hope in his life. And before we can get there, though, I want to take us through a journey of history so that we can all be on the same page. Because if we don't know the history, I'm afraid we're going to miss out on the joy of God's message and the coming of Christ this Christmas. So I've handed out a piece of paper that will come up on one of the slides here in just a moment. And so if you have that, get that ready. That might be a great place for you to start to make some notes uh, to be able to look at where we're headed and, and uh, what's going on. But uh, let, let's begin. This is the piece of paper you got, which is so frustrating. I know it's real small font, but for those of you that are willing to just hang with me and look at it, this is actually the entire Bible, all the books of the Bible laid out chronologically. So you can actually see when things were written and how they coincide with one another. And this is really important because as we get into today's story, we have to know some of this history that the Jews have been dealing with their entire life. So if you go all the way to the left and you look at Genesis at the very beginning and you see Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, this is when the nation of Israel begins to form itself. Then as we begin to move into this part, uh, the second part where you'll see where the Psalms and then you see the north and the south, this is where Israel begins to split itself into two major kingdoms, the north and the south. Already we see some division happening, and then there's a radical point that happens where it looks like a little, almost like a blue rainbow in the middle, and above it you'll see captivity, Daniel, and Ezekiel. That is actually the part in which, here, let me give you a little closer picture. That's the part where they go into captivity. And it's that part that really resonates in the soul of most Jews as they remember who they were, who they've become, and who they want to be. And whenever we read the scriptures at this point, we're going to see that God is constantly alluding to this idea that he hears their prayers, he wants to rescue his people, bring them out of foreign lands, and bring them back home with him. And so that's something we need to keep in the back of our heads. As we move past that, we get into this interesting part where they become their own Jewish state, and then they are under constant rule. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. And we have this incredible section of, of Nehemiah and Ezra that kind of play into this idea of what it was like for them when they were during this exile period. 
And so I want to walk you through parts of that. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through that history real quick, and then we're going to fill in this amazing gap. When you end the book of Malachi, before Matthew starts the Gospels off, we have 400 years of silence. I mean, think about that for a minute. 400 years where not a single prophet spoke, where, where people began to lose some of their hope, maybe even a little bit of their faith. But God has not forgotten his people. Because what we read about in the four Gospels is this amazing reality that God has not only not forgotten, but he has been working things together for his purpose and his good. Now what I want to do is fill in that gap a little bit so we're all on the same page of history. And so we're going to go back in time a little bit. First we're going to pick up somewhere in Daniel and Ezra. This is when the Israelites have first been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Now, after Israel has split into two distinct kingdoms, north and south, they then are taken captive by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. Ezra and Nehemiah then pick up the stories of what happens next, and those two books are really one entire piece of what's happening. Those stories involve a gracious God who's ready to give his people another opportunity to follow him. He hears their cries. He answers them by making a way for them to not only come and rebuild their nation, their lives, and their connection with God, but he is also showing himself to be the true force behind history because not only are these Persian kings going to allow the Israelites to go and rebuild their nation, they're going to fund it as well, which is something only a God could do. And so as the people begin to rebuild the city, they start by rebuilding the temple and then the city and the city walls. And they rededicate themselves to God in the following of his laws. And that's really critical that they always come back to that original covenant that God made with Abraham. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And so God is looking for people that are devoted to him as much as he is devoted to them. Now that's really fascinating to me that God looks at this covenant as he chooses us and us alone. And he's asking us to choose him and him alone. This is often why the marriage covenant is created and, and manipulated to look exactly like this relationship with God. It's choosing one person above all others. Well, then we go into Malachi, and Malachi now is talking about now that everything has been rebuilt and people are coming back, the Jews have now returned from exile. They're back in Jerusalem, but things just aren't quite working out the way they'd hope. Over time, these particular group of people, they're growing increasingly disheartened by all the hardships and the injustices they face. And as a result, they begin to renege on some of their fundamental promises of God, and they pull back from God. They keep their superficial commitments to religion. In other words, they're following the laws and the decrees, but they're doing it just out of sake, not out of real relationship with God. But instead, they now violate that spirit and that heart of their relationship with God. And so God wants to remind Israel of two key things in Malachi. Number one, that God is always faithful to his promises and requires his covenant partners to remain faithful as well. God is faithful. He asks us to be faithful. And number two, that one day God will come and he will judge all persons on the earth for their faithfulness and whether they were faithful or not. And so this is the underlining piece that happens at the end of Malachi. And we'll go into more of that in just a second. But now there's this 400-year gap before we jump into the Gospel of Matthew. And so I want to help fill that in because this is rather fascinating as we look at how God is orchestrating things behind in the background, even though it appears as if he's silent. So let's begin by looking at this. All right. 
This is Daniel and Ezekiel. This is them building the city. Now, this is Philip II of Macedon. Real good-looking dude, if you can see him there. Now, what he is, is he's the one who expands the Persian Empire until he's eventually assassinated. Now, it might not seem like a big deal, but he was a big deal at the time. But more importantly, he's going to have a son. And that son is going to be named Alexander. And Alexander is going to grow up in the shadow of this great king father. And after watching his father get assassinated, he's going to spend the rest of his life wanting to avenge not only his father's death, but trying to prove himself something of a man, a god king, if you will. And so he becomes known through history as Alexander the Great. You've probably heard of him. Now, what you may not know is one of his key teachers and mentors in life was Aristotle, one of the Greek uh, philosophy professors. And as he taught him the Greek language, he also taught him the culture. He taught him philosophy. And so as Alexander goes out and conquers most of the known world at that time, including Persia, he then translates that entire world into a Greek society, one that speaks Greek, one that acts Greek. It picks up the cultures of Greek. It picks up the philosophies of Greek. And so our entire world has now been shifted or formed into this Greek culture. Many of those things are still in existence today, and many of our own cultures have been so adapted into that that we pick up many of those Greek pieces as well. Now, Alexander's going to die at the age of 33 in Babylon, but before his death, he leaves instructions to all the key leaders. He says, who is going to rule this great kingdom I've built? And he says, give it to the strong. And so what Alexander does, here's Alexander the Great, he breaks it up into four sections and gives it to four of his generals who then rule over this particular area for quite some time. You have Lysimachus, I'm sorry, Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Now what I want to point out more importantly is over here the yellow, Seleucus, and the green, Ptolemy, right in between them is Jerusalem. Now, can you imagine as these states war against one another, trying to claim more land, poor Jerusalem is always caught in the middle, and they get the brunt of it. And so the Jews are going to spend part of this 400 years constantly in the midst of war. Now, they're not at war, but the people around them are, and they're going to feel the brunt of that. Eventually, there'll be a man named Antisius IV, and he likes to call himself... Um, let me see if I get this right. Epa. Oh, man. Epa. 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 Epiphenes. Thank you. Epiphenes. And what that means is that he has now self-proclaimed himself a god in flesh. And so he is taking this new part. He has now wiped out one of the areas. He's becoming the new king in town, and he's beginning to take over more and more land, including all these areas around Jerusalem. And so he begins hating this particular people group, the Jews. And so as he calls himself Ephenines, the Jews call him Athenines, which doesn't mean son of God or God in flesh. It really means beast. And so what's fascinating is as we jump forward in some of our theology and we begin to look at things like the mark of the beast in Revelation, this is some of the terminology that is picked up even way back when, that when an evil ruler comes in to rule, they call him the beast. Now this particular king came in and killed thousands upon thousands of Jews. He hated them so much he tried to wipe them out as a people. He also meddled with the way their belief system worked and the ways in which they honored God in their covenant. And so he took away the Sabbath. 
He took away circumcision. He began to burn copies of the Torah in the Jewish scriptures. And he began to put a statue of Zeus in the middle of their temple that was dedicated to Yahweh, their God. To make matters worse, he went out to the altar and he took a pig, an animal that was considered unclean, and he sacrificed it on the altar, not to Yahweh, but to Zeus, in order to desecrate the Jewish temple. This, of course, just sent the Jews into a tizzy, and he reigned supreme for quite some time. Now, somewhere around 250 BC, we have a Maccabean revolt. A particular priest of the Jewish lineage is worshiping God, and these guys come in from Syria, and they say, you're now going to worship this God, and you're going to do it right now or else die. And this priest and his son grab a little group of men, and they revolt against them, killing them, and they move forward, and for eight days, they fight against these armies and eventually push them not only out of the temple, but out of the entire land of Judea. Now, this will become known as Hanukkah, right? We celebrate this, and Hanukkah really just means dedication. After they had pushed all these people out and God miraculously made the oil last for eight days or eight nights, they were able to come back and rededicate the temple to God, Yahweh. And so this is really the celebration of dedication, of bringing life back and becoming their own Jewish nation again. And so this is a very celebratory time. Now, from 100 BC to 83, Judea becomes its own Jewish state. They're ruled by their own people. However, sometime around 63 BC, the Roman Empire comes in and takes control of the entire area and the known world. In doing so, they put their own puppet king, Herod, who we know as Herod the Great, on the throne. And so when we pick up the story of Jesus, we're going to read about Herod the Great coming into power and ruling over the people. And he is the self-proclaimed king of the Jews. All this has been going on in those 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. And so that's important for us to know as we begin our journey into better understanding how we're going to be a part of giving hope this Christmas season. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to have you flip over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And as you're flipping there, I'm going to share with you a passage from Malachi, beginning in chapter 4. And so Malachi ends the entire section, right? They're in, they've been in captivity. They've now been released. They've begun to rebuild their own city, but they're finding out things aren't working as well as they hoped. And so here is the final chapter of Malachi that's going to lead us into the beginning of Luke, the gospel. So he begins by this, saying in verse 4, Remember the instructions which Moses, my faithful servant, received from me at Mount Horeb. And he gave to all of Israel, remember its statutes and its judgments. So here's God's messenger, this prophet saying, hey, do not forget the word of God, the Ten Commandments, the law, the, the instructions given to us at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. So don't forget these things. Hold fast to the scriptures. And then number two, he's going to say, keep watch. I'm sending Elijah the prophet to you before the arrival of the great and terrible day of the eternal one. And he will return parents' hearts to their children and children's hearts to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land of promise with a curse of annihilation. Boy, this sounds totally awful. But here's what's happening. Again, God has reformed or, or re-sanctioned his covenant with his people. He said, look, I'm going to rescue you yet once again. Be your savior and be your God. And I'm asking you to trust me, to, to, to become one with me. Don't worship any other gods. Only worship me as I only am here for you. 
And so as God is re-entering into this relationship with us and inviting us into that relationship, he says, now here are the things in order to hold that covenant true and fast. Number one, cling to the scriptures because that's how you know the character and the nature of God. And number two, look for the signs of Elijah. That's the power of God moving through his people in such a way that God is going to do something so miraculous that the world will be transformed. And so often the Jewish culture still looks for Elijah today. In fact, at the Passover Seder, the last thing they do is they send a child to the front door to swing the front door open and look out for Elijah, his coming. Because Elijah is often associated with the Messiah, the one who will come and set things right. And so the reason Malachi ends with this is to remind us that these are the things that God is going to fulfill as we jump into this New Testament. So now, if you're in Luke, let's go there. And we're going to pick up in verse 5. Now, what you need to know about Luke is Luke is this physician, but he's not the kind of physician you might go to today like a doctor. He was probably a slave owned by a very rich family, and he was trained in the medical arts, so he's very well-schooled, well-knowledged. He can write very well. In fact, the Gospel of Luke is written in Greek, and it's one of the most elegant forms of Greek there ever is or was written. It is a very classical Greek, but it's a very upscale Greek. You have to have a very high reading level. And Luke is so educated and so talented that he's probably sent on this journey by a man named Theopolis or a group of people named Theopolis, which is a Greek word for saying someone in love with God. They're probably funding him to write this. And he's writing Luke and Acts on eyewitness accounts of what he has seen and heard from other people and his own experiences. And so he's going to pick up this story where he has seen and heard it from others in eyewitness accounts. And he begins to tell the story of Jesus in this way, verse 5. He says, to understand the life of Jesus, I must first give you some background, some history, some events that occurred when Herod, ruler of Judea for the Roman Empire, and Zacharias, who was serving as a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. In those days, as a father, he had come before him. He was a member of the priestly division of Abijah, a grandson of Aaron, who was involved at the temple practices, and his wife Elizabeth was one of priestly lineage of Aaron, Moses' brother. They were good and just people in God's sight, walking with integrity in the Lord's ways and laws, yet they still had this sadness. So here's a picture. Here are these two people. They're much older in age. They both come from the lineage of Aaron. Now, at this particular time in history, if you were to look back through all the different lineage of Aaron, there is probably about 20,000 people that can claim lineage with Aaron living in Jerusalem at this time. 20,000. And every one of those 20,000 men are invited to come and serve at the temple at some point during the year. But there's 20,000 of them, so they can't all come at once. So they're given two weeks a year to come and serve at the temple. And it happens to be this particular time that this man is brought to the temple. Now, if you can imagine, not only are you brought, but you're brought with all these other priests. And so they cast lots. They roll dice. They flip a coin. I don't know. They do something in which to decide who is going to go in and do the most holiest of the sacrimonies and ceremonies, which is to put burning incense on the altar of God in the Holy of Holies. And it falls to this man. I mean, this in itself is a miracle. He's probably never experienced this in his entire life. And so here is his big day to do it. But what I love about this particular setup that Luke puts us in is these people are outstanding. They have incredible character. They've walked with God their whole lives. They come from a priestly heritage. They're priests themselves. They do everything right. And yet they still have this sadness. 
Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, man, God, I, I'm doing everything right, but man, things still aren't working out? Man, God, what have I done wrong for you? I, I do everything I possibly can that's right, yet things still aren't working out in my world. This is one of those seasons that I'm personally struggling in. I'm saying, God, what did I do wrong here to cause these things to happen in my life? And God's answer is nothing. These are opportunities for us to grow near and dear to God. There are opportunities for us to grow in our own faith and our trust and our knowledge. And that's exactly what God is going to do in this story. As this man is called before God to come into the temple, he comes in and they always offer their sacrifices morning and then night. He's probably on the night shift in which he would go in and he would offer this sacrifice. He'd put the burning incense on the altar. He would say a prayer and then he would come back out and there's a group of people outside praying and praising God. Only this time it's a little different. You see, as he goes in, he's reminded of all those prayers he has been praying for his entire life. As a man who's far up in age, he's been praying ever since the moment he married this woman, Elizabeth, that she would have a child that they would not be barren, that they would have something to contribute to this world, that they would be a part of something much bigger. And they've prayed for this child all these years, probably to the point of wanting to give up. Have you ever had a prayer like that where you've asked for something for so long that you were about to give up, or maybe you did? Well, here's an opportunity where he is now standing in the temple. His wife is bare. He's probably 80 plus years in age, and he's going into this holy of holy moments with God. Only this time, something radical happens. As he walks in, there's a table that has the unleavened bread. There's a giant lampstand. And next to the lampstand is something that's very odd. It's never been there before. It's a giant angel standing there. And the angel declares himself. He says, I am Gabriel. I'm the one who stands in the presence of God. That, that angel would radiate the glory of God in such a way that it would be overwhelming for one of us to stand in his presence. And so I'm sure his first inkling is to look away or to block his eyes from the radiant glow of God's glory in this angel. And the angel says, your prayers have been heard by God. Now, I want you just to think about that for a minute. Have you ever just wanted God to hear you? I know my wife and I, when we talk, one of the most important things is that we hear one another. Not just listen, but I mean really hear and take in and understand what the other person is struggling with. Here's the angel of God coming before this man saying, God hears and understands you. He knows your pain. And he's going to answer that prayer. Your wife will now be with child. Now this man goes, that's really great and all, but how do I know for sure? Well, have you ever second-guessed God? And the Bible is full of stories of people second-guessing God. I myself second-guess God sometimes, but here's the reality. If God said it, he's going to do it. And this angel is coming to share what God said, and so therefore what God said is going to happen. And so here is the situation. This man says, well, how do I know? And the angel says, boy, because of your disbelief, you'll now be mute. You'll be mute the entire time your wife is conceiving this child and the child is being developed inside of her. And upon that child's birth, 
then your voice will return to you because you didn't have faith. Meanwhile, outside the temple, all the people that have gathered to pray and, and be about this are kind of looking at their watches going, man, this service is taking a long time. What is going on with that priest? Did he fall asleep? Pretty soon he makes his way out, but he can't speak, and they know something odd has happened because nobody comes out of the Holy of Holies so disheveled, yet so full of God's grace and peace, having met with an angel who stands in the presence of God. And the assurance of this man's faith is bolstered so much that he grabs a pad of paper and he begins writing what's going on. And the people all mutter amongst themselves, we are witness to something holy and special. The man goes home and he talks to his wife, you know, writing back and forth, telling her, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what God said. And his wife believes it right away. In fact, she believes it so much that she says, I'm going to lock myself away. I'm not going anywhere until I leave this house with a child. And so you see the difference of belief. This man stood in the presence of an angel who glowed with the radiant power and love of God's glory and didn't believe. Here's a woman who simply listened to her husband and trusted. Now, the story kind of breaks at this point. It's very odd, and Luke goes into another story about a young girl named Mary who also is getting a message from this angel Gabriel saying that she too will be with child. But that's for another day. The story continues where the woman is now along and ready to give birth, and as she gives birth to this child, they say, what name will this child have? Now, this is fascinating because in this particular culture, you are named after the people that were named before you. It's important. And so as you heard before that he comes from the tribe of Abijah, Abijah goes all the way back to Genesis. In fact, Abijah also is a priest that you can read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a name that is carried through the lineage of that family. Now, that may not make a lot of sense to you, but I grew up with a, a Greek family that I just love so dearly. Their last name is Georgian. And you have Fred Georgian is the dad, George Georgian is the son, and Chris Georgian is the other son. And guess what happens when all the aunts and uncles show up? Every man there is either named Fred, George, or Chris. So you have a one in three chance of getting their name right. It's the same in this culture. People would name their child after themselves or their relatives, and that name would carry on throughout the lineage. It was a sign of, of pride and ownership and, and a way in which to distinguish yourself as part of a particular group. But in this case... When they ask the man who would normally name a child in this culture, what is the child's name, he can't speak. And his wife chimes in and says, this child's name will be John. Everyone looks puzzled and they say, well, wait a minute, there's no John in your family. Why would you, why would you name him John? That's crazy talk. So they go back to the man to ask him what he's going to name the child. And he writes on a pad of paper, his name is John. And the moment his pen or writing implement finishes that last line, he begins to speak again. And the prophecy the angel put upon him, that curse is now lifted. And truly, they have a son named John. Now, this particular son has been prophesied over by the angel that he would be something far more than just a regular person. He would be born with the very Spirit of God, something that they had never seen before. See, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come and it would leave and it would come and it would leave and it would come in order to do something great and then it would leave. But in this case, it would come and dwell within this person. It's a foreshadowing of what God is going to come and do through the Messiah, that he is going to come and take up his tabernacle, his dwelling place within us. 
And so this young man, John, becomes known to us as John the Baptist. We read about him as the one who's out in the wilderness who eats locusts and honey and wears that camel hair shirt. And he's very bizarre, but he becomes that prophet, that voice in the wilderness, that Elijah person who is coming to unite hearts back to God and to bring people back into that relationship to make them ready for the coming of the Messiah. That's why when Jesus comes as a man to him to be baptized, John says, no, no, you should be the one baptizing me. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, no, to fulfill the prophecies, John, you will baptize me. And as John does so, the heavens open up and we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in one unique moment. As if God puts his seal of approval on this. This is just the beginning of the Christmas story. We haven't even gotten to the coming of Christ yet. But as we begin this season of giving hope, I want you to know that maybe some of you feel like me where you feel a little hopeless. Maybe you feel just like this particular person, Zacharias, who felt somewhat hopeless. But then all of a sudden, there was a glimmer of hope. He was chosen amongst the 20,000. He then is invited to come and be a part of a very special practice in the temple, to go and put incense on the altar before God. He then comes into an encounter with an angel of the living God, radiant with God's glory. He then is prophesied over about the child that he would have, a miraculous encounter, and that child becomes this amazing cornerstone of God moving in the direction of bringing his Messiah, his son, into fruition into the earth. So that not only you and I, could find a new connection with God, one that could never be severed, but that the entire world could begin going through its recreation, where God would make things new. This is a season of making things new, and so in the same way I ask God to make my attitude new, I ask you to do the same. That as we prepare our hearts, that we look forward to the miracles that God is going to do in our midst. That even when we're in the midst of 400 years of silence, God is constantly manipulating and moving and making things go behind the scenes that you and I are so unaware of, all so we can get to this moment. I find it fascinating that once the world was conquered by Alexander the Great and everybody had to speak Greek, that the Bible's written in Greek so that the whole world would be able to read it. I find it so fascinating that God misses nothing. That as he works things that don't always make sense, that somehow in the midst of it, he is still doing things to his glory and our benefit. So my friends, if anything, you and I have hope. Not just because an angel said so, but because God himself demonstrated it. And just like... The Old Testament talks about God's promises always being fulfilled by God. Here we are now beginning to see those promises in fruition being fulfilled. My friends, this is the hope that we can put not only in our pockets but in our hearts. So my prayer this Christmas season as we begin going into the season of Advent is that we are able to give hope because we have hope to give that we are able to tell others of the stories that are happening in our lives right now. That maybe we would even have stories to share from our past, but more importantly, we'd have even more stories to share of our future. That in the midst of this, this is what happened. 
Now, I want to tell you something really neat that's been going on in our family. We took four kids, and not because we wanted to be greedy and take four, but because I wanted to invite my sister and my mother into this with us. So my sister's family looked at them, and my mother looked at them, and instead of just picking one kid each, we decided, why don't we all kind of tackle this, and we can look for the different things these kids want. And so it's becoming a really fun game between us and the cousins to go out and find these different elements for these kids and really bless these children. My sister runs, a, it's called Buy Nothing. It's an online website. She's one of the administrators for this uh, nationwide organization, and she does it for Granville. And what's fascinating is she's been posting this on the Buy Nothing wall. Hey, if you want to be a part of something great, here's 24 days of Christmas that you, your family, your friends can be involved with. You know, I can't wait to see what God does through that. Because what God wants to do, he'll invite anyone and everyone to be a part of. See, it's not about you or about me. It's not about how much or how little. It's about what God wants to do in the midst. And let me tell you right now, God can do a lot with a little. And so I cannot wait to see what God has in store for these organizations that we're supporting in our local community and in the lives of the people that they get to touch. So stay tuned as we watch that unfold and see how different people are going to come and be a part of the miracle of Christmas. You know, this is our turn to give hope. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you into this time of communion. If you haven't already got your elements, go ahead and get them. Today we're going to be using juice boxes and animal crackers. For those of you at home, whatever you want to grab. You know, we talk about that night when Christ met with all his disciples right before the week of Passover. And as they're celebrating this Passover meal together, Christ takes the bread and he gives thanks to God and he breaks it in half and then he turns the bread into an amazing metaphor. You know, alluding to the idea that wheat has to be crushed and, and has to be molded and formed into this dough and it has to rise and all the different things that go into the process, Christ says, so is my body. And then just like the loaf of bread has to be broken before you can eat it, he says, so will I be broken for you. You see, Christ never forgets that in the midst of all this, God is working a plan. And so my friends, as you take and eat, remember the plan that God has set forth from the very beginning. That he will provide a Savior, a Messiah. The one that we will come to know is Christ our Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. Take and eat in remembrance of his life his death, his resurrection, and how he lives again with the Father, knowing full well that you and I will also live again. I'm going to take my juice box. Go ahead and take whatever element you have. And in a likewise way, Jesus took this cup at the meal. And it was the fourth cup of the meal, a very special cup that signifies something. It's the cup that reminds us of life everlasting and the great feast that we'll have when we sit right before the Father, all in unison together, in the comfort and the safety of knowing that we are loved and that we love God. It's at that meal that Christ says, you know, I'm not going to drink of this cup until I drink it anew in the kingdom of heaven, for I'm going there to make a place for you. 
And he reminds us that everything in his life leads up to this moment where he's going to give his very life. Not just for you and I, but for the world and everyone in it. So that all peoples of the earth might come to know that God loves them so much. And he invites them into this covenant to be his people, that he might be their God. That he would honor them and respect them and ask them to do the same. And therefore building faith between the two. That faith is what God will judge one day. Now the hard part is we always think about those that are going to be judged and we think that doesn't sound very fair. But the truth is if God is worth being worshipped, then it would be unfair not to give him the rightful worship that belongs to him. And so as Christ gives his own life, we as Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, remember that we give our lives for Christ. And so as you take and drink, I want you to remember the sacrifice Christ made for you and now the sacrifice we're invited to give others. And just as Christ gave his life with joy, so we give ours with joy. So this season, this Christmas, we can give hope with joy. Take and drink in remembrance of what Christ has done for you. This concludes our time together. Allow me to pray a blessing over you and your family as we head into this amazing season of Advent. Lord, first of all, I confess that I don't always have the right heart and the right attitude, that I get overwhelmed by the world and all the things in it. I get frustrated when things don't go my way, and I certainly get angry at injustice. But God, I also, deep down inside, know that you are God, and I trust you with my whole heart even though my actions sometimes take a while to follow. And so, God, during this season of Advent, I pray that you would make all things new to us, that the story of Christ would not be one that is simply rote, but would be something new and alive in our lives, that we would be more than just followers of Christ, that we would be livers of Christ, that our lives would be filled in such a way that it would overflow and we would be able to give hope to others. Father, bless us now as we go forth, whether it be individually or in our family units. Father, would you bless us as we move forward into this season? Reveal yourself to us. Allow us to see the miracles and the -the behind-the-scenes things that you're doing all the time. And allow us to celebrate you as being good in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Go in the peace and the love of Christ. Amen.